It's a pleasure to be with you this morning. If you are a guest here at FBC Tipito, we're always excited to have guests with us. Um, this morning, Jared is not with us because he's not feeling well. And you know what I like about our church as one, you have one person is down, next man or next woman is up. Um, and this is exactly what we experienced here this morning that Clay was able to lead, Colleen was able to lead, uh, Ashley was able to lead. And thank God for our brother and sisters and those on the worship team. Thank you all so much for doing that and being a part of that. Um, you know, Cass is not there to, to work the sound system. So uh, if, if you look carefully, you'll see Abram back there helping with Tony. Um, so when one is down, the next is up. Um, so just, just again, just thankful, thankful for the church. But this is also an encouragement to you. And the encouragement is we're all participating. We have no bench warmers. So if you're a member here, we need you. We need you to serve. The only way this is happening is when we work together as a team. We work together as a team. So find a place to serve if you're not serving. Um, we definitely need servants. We need servants to, uh, to be able to get this thing moving, to get this thing rolling. Um, but what a great encouragement that we do have before us. With that said, we are in the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24. When you've arrived to the passage of Scripture in Hebrews 12, uh, verses 18 through 24, say, Word. Can you stand? We stand out of reverence to God's holy and righteous word. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, and gloom, and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg, that no further message be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the immovable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkling of blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. God, we are thankful for your word, and we know that we are approaching the throne of grace where God is. And the throne of grace dispenses mercy and grace every day for your people. So God, we are here to understand your word. So we need the spirit of God to open our minds. We need the spirit of God to illuminate us. We need the spirit of God to speak to us. And as Clay pray, God, I pray that we are attentive to learn about the holiness of God. To teach us what we do not know, make us what we are not, and give us what we do not have. In your mighty and precious name, amen, amen. You may be seated. 
The title for today's sermon is Christians Belong to a Heavenly Kingdom. Christians Belong to a Heavenly Kingdom. The Beatitudes in the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 5 to be exact, is all about the attitudes of a Christian. To Christians, what ought to be your attitude? Well, read Matthew chapter 5. And in that, Jesus mentioned that we are called to be poor in spirit. Poor in spirit means that you are spiritually bankrupt. There's no sense of hubris and pride when we approach God. We cannot say to God that we are self-righteous, or here's all our righteousness. No, we say to him that we are empty, we are poor in spirit, and we are coming to the banquet that God has for us with no money. And we say, God, provide for us. There is a sense of humility. We are called to mourn, and we mourn over our sins. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Mourn over what? Over your sins. So the Bible tells us if we mourn, if we repent, that God will comfort our souls, right? This is the attitude of a Christian. We don't walk around and, and say to ourselves, well, I'm prideful in my sin. This is my sin. Don't talk about my sin. No, a Christian who, who understands God, a one who is born again, his attitude should always be when I sin against a holy God that I'm broken by my sin. So I mourn and I find great comfort. It also tells us that a Christian should be meek. And meekness is power under control. Meekness is not weakness. The attitude of a Christian is, is great power that God has given us, and yet we walk the earth with great humility and meekness. Then he tells us as well that a Christian should have a spiritual appetite, that we should be, we should hunger and thirst for righteousness. This is a spiritual appetite that we must have. We are always hungry, always thirsty spiritually. For more of God. We always want to see the power of God manifested in our lives and in the lives of others. The Bible says that we will be satisfied if we hunger and thirst. We are called to be merciful. As Christians, we shouldn't walk this earth holding grudges and bitterness in our hearts towards one another and towards others. No, we are always pursuing forgiven people. Why is that? Because if we have experienced receiving mercy from God, then we should be able to dispense mercy to others. This is the attitude of a Christian. We are called to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers, but peacemakers. We deal with the tough things. And we try to help people understand who God is. And if there's difficulties in our lives, we push on. We press on. And we try to find peace. And finally, we as Christians suffer well when we are persecuted. This is the attitude of a Christian. We must suffer well when we are persecuted. These are the attitudes of a Christian who belong to the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here. 
He transitions now into Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 24, and it's about the kingdom of God, the attitudes of those who belong to that kingdom. And if you notice very carefully, he's been sharing thus far about the Christian race. So we notice in chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, he lays down the foundation of his metaphor. And, and he says to us that we are running this Christian race. And to run this Christian race, it is not a sprint, but it's a marathon. And there's several things we must do. We must turn away from our sins and anything that hinders us. And we must look to Jesus, who is the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Then he transitions from that in verses 4 through 11, and he tells us of the discipline of God. He says that we will experience hardship. But he tells us, do not run away from the discipline of God, but we must embrace the discipline of God. He, he said, many of you perhaps are discouraged because of the discipline of God, but you are looking at the discipline of God in the wrong way. When you think about the discipline of God, many Christians think of it only as corrective discipline, which is true. It is, that's a part of it, corrective discipline. God corrects us when we sin against him, like a parent who spanks their child because their child did something wrong, disobeyed them. God does the same thing. He spanks us, right? But when you think about discipline, there is also preventative discipline, as I shared with you. It is not because you have sinned. It is perhaps because you are going to sin that God prevents you from going in that direction. There is also educational discipline. Like Job, for example. Job did not sin. But God says to Satan, here is Job, consider my servant Job and go. Test him. But you just can't kill him. And the whole point of Job was for what? It was meant for educational discipline. So we have those three disciplines in Scripture. And here, he shares that with us from verses 4 through 11. And then he transitions from that with the same metaphor, and he leads us into verses 12 through 17. And in that, the author is still saying to us, we're running this race. We're running this Christian race. But as we're running this Christian race, there are things that we are called to pursue and things we are called to not pursue. And he tells us in the text what we ought to pursue. We are to pursue peace. We are called to pursue holiness. He says, strive for peace, strive for holiness. And then he says, we ought to pursue one another. The word that he used here to pursue one another is the word Episcopos, which is the word bishop. We must give oversight to one another. So we are called to pursue one another. And then he says there are things we are called not to pursue. Do not pursue the things that Esau pursued. And now he transitions from that to a very important passage of Scripture. At first, it looks as if that the author just completely jump from his theme. It's very difficult at first to decipher what he is saying here. 
Like, what exactly are you doing? Man, you've been talking about running the race, and all of a sudden you're talking about the holiness of God, and you're talking about Moses tremble. What, is, what does that have to do with anything? And it, it has a lot to do with what he wants you to see, especially his audience. You see, the author is also a pastor, and he understands the problem within the church altogether. And one of the main problems was the fact that they wanted to run away from Christianity and look at Judaism. They wanted to perhaps pursue the Levitical system because they were saying to themselves, God, we've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And all we are experiencing as Christians are difficulties, trials and tribulations. All the promises that you say you were going to give us, God, we are not seeing it today. We're just seeing difficulties. And perhaps you are exactly where the small Hebrew church was. That you're saying to yourself, man, I've been a Christian for 5, 15, 20, 30, 40 years. And I haven't experienced the promises of God. I'm still going through difficulties. I'm still going through trials. I'm still going through health problems. I'm still going through persecution. And you're saying, where are you, Jesus? And like the author spoke to them in that time, he's speaking to you now. So come in closer for the rest of this sermon and pay close attention because God wants to speak to you. God wants to encourage you. So what does he do? He, what, he, what he does here this morning, I want you to see two points. He gives kind of like an illustration. In the first, he mentions Mount Sinai. So Mount Sinai here in the text represents um, the mountain of fear. So he says to them, do, do not go back to the mountain of fear, which is our first point, Mount Sinai, the mountain of fear. We see this in verses 18 through 21. It's so fearful that Moses mentioned, I am trembling with fear. The second point I want you to observe in the text is Mount Zion, which is the mountain of grace. The mountain of grace. We see this in verses 22 through 24. In Mount Zion, we see this sense of approaching God with boldness. Mount Sinai, we see approaching God with fear. So he turns and he tells the small church, the small Hebrew church, do not go back to Mount Zion or Mount Sinai. It, it can do nothing for you. Turn and see Mount Zion where there is grace upon grace upon grace. This is his, his analogy here. So notice with me the first point, Mount Sinai the mountain of fear. Do you notice in your own Bibles what he mentions here, the phrase, not come to what could be touched, points the readers back to Mount Sinai. And exactly here he's talking about Exodus chapter 19. In Exodus chapter 19, Moses climbed this great mountain where Moses met with God and God gave Moses the Ten Commandments. For, the, for Israel. And, and with that, we see the fireworks at Mount Sinai. Just dread and awfulness. 
this is what the text mentioned as you read through Exodus chapter 19. I mean, this is, this is stuff mentioned in there that, that some horror movies don't even have. I mean, it's just, it's just dreadful. You, you're, you're seeing all kinds of stuff that's happening, thunder and lightning and darkness. And when God speaks, the Bible says that he speaks in this thunder kind of a, a voice. The earth was shaken as the people saw, as they were walking, it's shaken. I mean, can you imagine this, right? And this is exactly what's happening. Also, God told the people certain things that they were called to do. One in particular, they were called to wash their clothes, which is mentioned in chapter 19, verses 10 through 11. They were called to abstain from sexual relations as to be ceremonially clean. They were about to approach a holy God. And if they did not do that, they could die and would die. God told them not to even touch the mountain. And if there was an animal for some reason that left their area and wandered to the mountain, they were not even called to go and rescue the animal. They were called to stone the animal or use an arrow to kill the animal. Why was that? Because God was so holy. God is so holy. And Mount Sinai represents that. The holiness of God. And we notice exactly what the people were doing. Exodus chapter 19, verses 18 through 19. That was very carefully what it mentioned. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like the smoke of kale, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as a sound of trumpets grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him in thunder. This represents the power, might, and sheer holiness of God. And this is where the people of Israel went. But friends, this is exactly where the New Testament saints in that little Hebrew church wanted to go back to. <laughs> and this is exactly what the author of Hebrews is doing here. He's saying, do, do you understand why, what you're doing? Do you understand that you want to go back to what you think is familiar to you and your ancestors? And, and we're all guilty of this, right? We, we often want to go back to what is familiar to us, even if it is wrong for us, even if it's not good for us, even if we might be in bondage. We want to drift back to what is familiar to us. We find the same thing with the Israelites, right? When Moses and God rescued them from Egypt, what were they saying? Oh, we would rather go back to Egypt where we are in bondage because of what fear fear of the unknown and friends this is exactly what happens to us even today let me give you a perfect example of this an abusive woman a woman who has been abused who is in her home the husband consistently abuses her physically over and over and over again sometimes she refuses to leave 
primarily because of the fear of the unknown. She would rather stay in an abusive relationship primarily because she feels like as if it's familiar. This shows us how we are as human beings. And when it comes to spirituality, it's the same thing. We find ourselves being okay with what's familiar rather than having hope in what's new. The fact that God is leading us through something and trusting in him. Even if we're not seeing all the promises happening today, we can say and we should say that our former life, we were in bondage. I do not want to go back there. I do not want to see that anymore. You see, Satan does a really good job in allowing us to forget our former lives. Do you remember the sleepless nights? Do you remember when you wanted to commit suicide because you were so unhappy? Do you remember your bondage to sin? Do you remember these things? You see, oftentimes we forget these things. So now in our Christianity, because we're going through difficult times, it is easy for us to say, oh, I want to go back to the former life. Don't do that. This is exactly what the small church they were dealing with. They were dealing with this very problem. And here we have the author of Hebrews saying to them, do not go back to Mount Sinai. There's fear, anxiety, depression, and no love. But Notice with me very carefully how amazing this is. It's amazing because we look at the life of Moses in this particular text, and we see what Moses did. According to Exodus chapter 20, verses 20 through 21, notice very carefully and coming closer and see this for yourself. Moses said to the people, do not fear, which is the unhealthy fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, which is the healthy fear, that you may not sin. The people stood afar off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. This gives us a picture. Even when God was given the law to his people, there was grace. Which leads us to the second point. Mount Zion, which is the mountain of grace. Coming closer, and I need you to hear this, because as I was studying this, a lot of commentary said the book here, the author of Hebrews, is making a great distinction between the law and grace. And here he says, some of the commentary says, when he talks about the law, he's saying that when God gave the law, there was no grace at all. But the new covenant is all about grace. And I think I have, I have a serious problem with that. And here's the reason why I have a problem with that. Because of what Exodus 20, 20 to 21 mentions. Moses said to the people, do not fear. The people stood afar off. But Moses drew near to where? Where God was. How was Moses able to draw near to where God was? If it wasn't for grace. Now, it's important that you understand this because Moses here represents who we are in Christ, who we should be in Christ. It represents the fulfillment of the New Testament. 
Moses here represents us in the New Testament that we can go boldly to the throne of God, that we can approach God. In the Old Testament, when the law was given, it was still given in grace, but it hinged upon the final work of our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you read the Old Testament, when you see the law given, do not say, well, grace of God was not there. It was nothing but trouble here. No. Grace was given, but it hinged upon the finishing work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is exactly what he transitions from. He says to them, why go to Mount Sinai, where you get just a picture of grace, when Mount Zion gives you the totality of grace? Mount Zion tells you who grace is altogether. It was Jesus. And the, Old, the New Testament is filled with great passages and statements of how we can approach God boldly because of the work of Jesus Christ. So what we see in Exodus chapter 20, verses 20 to 21, in the life of Moses, is exactly what the New Testament says, that every single one of you who are saved can approach God. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, like Moses did that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus, in the book of Matthew, had mentioned that when he died, it says, it is finished. The temple curtain was torn in two, which gives us access to God. So Moses in Exodus chapter 20, verses 20 through 21, is a picture of what will happen because of the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. We have the gospel here. So why return? Why trust in the Levitical system? Why do these things? And let's stop, let's stop one second, let's stop one second. But, but perhaps, perhaps for many of us, we are not struggling with the Levitical system, right? We're not. Most Gentiles, it's not what we struggle with. But what we struggle with is, with is with a series of Sinai's. And what, what is that? Legalism. We place heavy burdens on ourselves and on other people. Rules and regulations that's not in Scripture. We create a necklace of that. We place it upon ourselves. And we place it upon everyone that we see. And we tell them to live like this. We are doing exactly the same thing that the small Hebrew church they were struggling with. This is the warning for us. This is the warning for us. So how do we, how do we turn from that? This is how we turn from that. Coming closer, it leads us to the second point. It is by fixating on Mount Zion. The mountain of grace. That Jesus fulfilled all things perfectly. Listen and come in closer and don't miss this. He fulfilled Mount Sinai for us. All the rules and regulation. Jesus climbed up Mount Sinai and lived it perfectly for us. 
is what theologians called active obedience. What is active obedience? That he lived perfectly without no sin. He fulfilled the requirement of the law for us when we could not even do it ourselves. There's no way that we can live perfectly. But Jesus did. This is why when you read the book of Matthew, it tells us, and he fulfilled this according to Isaiah. He fulfilled this according to Jeremiah. He fulfilled this according to Psalms. Why? Because Jesus' active obedience. We have records of it as we read through the gospel and we see how obedient Jesus was. He lived perfectly and righteously. But there's also another thing that we must understand. It is called Jesus' passive obedience. What is his passive obedience? That he yield his life on the cross to die for our sins. So that when God looks upon us now, God sees the righteousness of Jesus in us because of Jesus' passive obedience. So we see his active obedience, but we also see his passive obedience. My friends, I need you to see this with me very carefully. Verses 22 through 24, the author mentions seven things that we must come to because of grace, because of the finishing work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Come to it. Number one, we come to the city of the living God. Do you see it? See for yourself here. We come to the city of the living God. Notice in verse 22. In verse 22, he mentions this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. This is magnificent. You see, he, again, he's writing to Jewish people. And they understand what he's talking about. You see, Mount Zion was actually a physical place. When David defeated the Jebusites, and David brought the Ark of the Covenant, and he brought it to Mount Zion, which is Jerusalem. Huh, awesome. And when David brought it there, it was known as the place where God's presence dwelt with his people. Later on, it was exactly on that spot that Solomon will build a temple. So we see that Mount Zion represented a physical place, but it represented something even better, a spiritual place. When God says that it will be a new Jerusalem. And this is exactly what's happening here. That he says to them of this great place, Mount Zion, a place where God dwells, a place that we will be with him forever. And he says to them to fix their eyes upon Mount Zion. I love what Kent Hughes mentions here. He says, Christians are now citizens of the heavenly city and enjoy its privileges. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20 says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You do not belong on this earth. Your destiny is in heaven. Your final destination is in heaven. We, we need to be reminded of this on a consistent basis. 
So because my final destination is in heaven, I live heavenly, not earthly. And this is his point here. Why focus on something that is physical when you can have something that is eternal? Turn to God. The second thing that he says here that we come to, we come to angels, innumerable angels in festal gathering is what he mentions here. What is the author of Hebrews mentioning? What what is he really saying here? The original language, general assembly, means the gathering of a public festival. And specifically what he's talking about are angels, which is amazing. Here, he's saying to us that when we come to grace, we come to angels, thousands and hundreds and thousands of angels making much of Jesus, making much of God. In other words, I want you to see this with me. Moses tells us that myriads of holy ones attended the giving of the law. So when God gave the law to the people, there were angels around worshiping God. In Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 2, Daniel tells us this. He says, thousands upon thousands of angels attended him, the ancient of days, 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. In Daniel chapter 7, verse 10, David says to us, the chariots of God are tens of thousands and thousands of thousands. In Psalm 68, verse 17. And we are told in the New Testament that God said to Peter, If I desire, God will send thousands upon thousands of angels to me. We're also told in the book of Matthew, when Jesus was being tempted in Matthew chapter 4, and after the temptation, that angels came to what? Minister to him. So we know in Scripture that angels are around. On this earth, angels are around, making much of our Lord. As a matter of fact, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it tells us that angels are here to assist those who will inherit salvation. They're here to protect God's people as well. So when we come to grace, we come to thousands of angels ministering to God. And also ministering to us. But here's the problem. We're not called to worship them. They're only foot soldiers. We're called to worship the commander. We're called to worship the master. Thank God for angels. But most importantly, thank God for him. This is the problem we have with humanity. And this is a problem we had at the beginning of the book of Hebrews where some of the people in the church were worshiping angels. And he says, don't do that. They're only here to minister to you. So we come to meet with angels. This is incredible. Third, we come to the church. We come to the church. See for yourself in verse 23, what he mentions here. 
and to the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God. So here, the assembly of the firstborn, he's talking about the church. Jesus is the firstborn. And the firstborn means that you get all of the inheritance, all of the blessings. But Jesus is the firstborn of the Father. We know this according to Scripture. So now, because we are in Christ, we have union with Christ, we are considered to be the firstborn as well. We are co-inheritors with Jesus. And this is exactly what Scripture mentions here. We come to the church. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 tells us that we are co-heirs with Jesus. Bishop Westcott, he says this, We are a society of eldest sons of God. There are no second or third or fourth son and daughters in the church. We are all, or we all get the big inheritance. This is so true. If you are, are a Christian here, this applies to you. You're a son and a daughter of God. You are the firstborn because of Jesus. But notice what else he provides for us here. See for yourself what he mentions. The firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And this is what he's telling the church. Be encouraged. Your name is written in heaven. In 1 Peter chapter 1, he mentions that we are given this great inheritance that is kept for us by God in heaven. An inheritance that does not fade away and it's undefiled. Kept for you by God. So friends, if your name is written on the Lamb's book of life, if this is your destiny and your destination, why are we not living as if we are from heaven? Why would you want to go back to Mount Sinai, your former life? What's familiar to you instead of going to what God has prepared for you? We are heaven bound. And this is what he's saying to us here. Fourth, he mentions we come to God. You see it in verse 23. We, we come to God. I love this. When you come to grace, you come to the source of grace, you come to God, you come to God himself. And he says, and to God, the judge of all. So, so we come to a loving God, but we also come to a God who judges. He does not change. And this is what people tell you. In the Old Testament, God was a God who judged. But in the New Testament, he's a God who loves. No, friends. In the Old Testament, he loves and he judged. In the New Testament, he loves and he judges. And this is exactly what he's saying to us here. We come to God himself when we come to grace. But a God who judges. A God who is just. A God who is righteous. We come to him. Fifth, we come to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Do you see it in your own Bibles? 
Verse 23, verse uh, 23, he mentions this to us. So the spirits of righteous man made perfect. Who is he talking about? Old Testament saints. We've been reading about Abel and Seth and Lot and Abraham. Ah, don't you just love Abraham? Just love sitting in Sunday school and learning about Abraham. We learn about Jacob and Joseph. And we will read stories about David, a man after God's own heart, a prophet. And then we get to the New Testament. And we see of this man by the name of John the Baptist. That God said, Jesus said, there's no greater prophet than John the Baptist ever. And think about your favorite prophet in the, in the Old Testament. There were nothing compared to John. And this is what Jesus ends his statement by saying. Coming closer, don't miss this. He says, and John, compared to you in the new covenant, is Luis. <laughs> wow. Here is exactly what the author of Hebrews is saying. That these people are made perfect with us. Because we are on the other side of the covenant that have experienced the grace and finishing work of Jesus. So here he tells us exactly that all of these men and women are made perfect in us, with us, through us. And six, we come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Do you see in your own Bibles? See in your own Bible. See for yourself. When we come to grace, we come to Jesus, who is the mediator of the new covenant. He says this in verse 24, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant and to the sprinkling blood that speaks a better word. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And I love the fact that he mentions the word Jesus, which points to the humanity of Jesus. And here he wants us to identify with Jesus's humanity. So like Jesus, with Jesus, we can identify with his humanity, right? So here, the author is telling us that Jesus was our mediator. His active obedience is clear in Scripture. His passive obedience is clear in Scripture. And when he died, he became our mediator. So now... We can come boldly to the throne of grace where the Father is because of the work of Jesus Christ. We can come with great confidence as opposed to Mount Sinai where they said to Moses, we cannot speak to God. Moses, you go and speak to God. Now Jesus says, come speak to the Father. And seven, we come to forgiveness. I love what he mentions here. And see the last point here. He says, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You know what he's doing here? The atoning work of Jesus Christ. That blood needed to be shared for us to be forgiven. God has forgiven us because of the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. But there is a great contrast here. And what is the contrast? Abel's blood was warm. It cried out from the ground for great vengeance. Right? That's exactly what happened. He was killed by his brother Cain. And Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. 
Jesus' blood did the opposite. <laughs> Cried out for forgiveness. Even before he died, he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. There's a huge difference between the blood of Jesus and the blood of Abel. Abel's blood was not able to redeem mankind. No, but Jesus' blood is able to redeem mankind, has redeemed mankind. Jesus' blood can save us from the penalty of sin. So we have it here, friends, that we see the sprinkled blood of Jesus on our behalf. So here's a question as we close. Think, are you desiring to go back to your former life? Are you thinking because of the situation you're in right now, it's so hard that going back to your former life is going to bring a sense of peace and happiness and satisfaction? It will not. So what must you do? Think about Mount Zion. Think about the grace that God has given you. Think about the fact that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Think about the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Jesus who dispenses grace every single day for you. And be encouraged. Be encouraged. Those weak, weak, weak knees that you have, those hands that are dropping according to the analogy he gives us, put them up. Run, endure, and the way you do this is by looking to Jesus and looking to the mountain of grace, Mount Zion. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for your word. Sometimes it's difficult for us to understand, but we are thankful for the clarity that we do get by the Spirit of God, by men who have studied hard, were able to allow us to understand. Thank you, Father, that you have not left us to ourselves. But God, you are constantly speaking to our hearts. We love you and we worship you. Amen. Amen.